I'm ABC's Aaron Katursky, and this is Bringing America Back, What You Need to Know. From elaborate meals by celebrity chefs to a grilled cheese and tomato at the diner, eating out is a quintessential part of life in New York City. And today, restaurants began welcoming outdoor diners as part of the city's phased reopening. Giselle Diaco owns Avena in Greenwich Village, which is down to 18 seats from its usual 55. We did this mostly for the neighborhood. I'm not sure if this is going to be financially viable in the long run, but you have to get out of the house. The city allowed restaurants to take over sidewalk and parking spot space. There's indoor dining again in Massachusetts and Sheila Foley's neighborhood restaurant and bakery in Somerville. We'll use the inside for air conditioning in case we have an elderly person who's afraid to sit with other people. We can always sit them inside. Elsewhere, coronavirus is getting worse. Arizona, California, Florida, North Carolina, South Carolina and Texas are among the states reporting increasing numbers of infections. And the national curve is bending in the wrong direction. A week ago, the positive test rate in the country was, on average, 4.4 percent. Today, it's 5.3 percent. And the number of coronavirus deaths in the United States has surpassed 120,000. In Northeast Ohio, there is an increase in the number of children testing positive for COVID-19. Dr. Amy Edwards, a pediatric infectious disease doctor, noticed it where she works at University Hospital's Rainbow Babies and Children's Hospital in Cleveland. Dr. Edwards, what's going on? Yeah, I mean, it's a pretty modest increase, but it's noticeable. We So we at Rainbow, and, and I am very specifically talking about Rainbow, which covers kind of the Northeast Ohio catchment area. So I'm not talking about the state of Ohio or other cities. So every child, so that's 17 years and 364 days or younger, who is tested for COVID, we're tracking all of our tests. At the beginning of the outbreak, we were looking at mm, somewhere around the like 1% to 2% positive. In, in symptomatic children, um, and that's gone up to a peak of about 7%, and it did kind of very modestly come down to like 6% or something like that, but it's definitely an increase from the beginning of the outbreak, and so that's just something that we've been keeping an eye on. And together with that, we have seen a slight increase in hospitalization as well. It's not a dramatic increase necessarily, but Mm-mm. is it worrying when, when you just get that slow creep? Um, I, I, a slow creep is to be expected as the economy opens back up, as long as it settles down and stops creeping. <laughs> so if a month from now, instead of 7%, we're talking about 15%, and you know, then yeah, I'm going to start to worry more. Um, but at this point, it's just, it's just caused for us to all take a deep breath and say, okay, remember, coronavirus is still with us. Kids can actually get coronavirus. They can be hospitalized from it, although very rare. Um, and so we just need, you know, everybody wearing their masks, everybody washing their hands and just staying vigilant. An open economy does not mean that the coronavirus is gone. How severe are these cases? Most of them are mild. Most of the, the vast majority of them are being managed outpatient. Um, so that's fantastic. I mean, we, we expected that from the beginning of the outbreak and it's nice to have it confirmed even as our numbers start to go up. But we have had an increase in admissions. So some of them are requiring more intensive care in the hospital. To tell kids to stay away from each other on the playground or not to touch certain things, that's always been a tall order through this pandemic. It absolutely is. And and that's why, you know, one of the main things that I've been stressing is, um, you know, now that the weather allows it, let's take the kids outside. Like, I get it that cousins want to get together and play. I understand that. So let's have them play outside where it's harder to spread this disease than, than having them all inside watching TV together. 
Um, and so, I mean, I, I get that, that it, I mean, I have a one-year-old and a three-year-old, trust me, I, I get it. Um, but it's, you know, it, it's not normal time. So we've just got to parent abnormally. <laughs> it's a great, it's a great phrase, parent abnormally. I like that. Well, I let my husband make a lot of the medical decisions because I can't see the force of trees, <laughs> to be very honest. Um, he laughs at me all the time. He's like, you know, every time they have a fever, it's not meningitis. And I'm like, I oh, know. Um, but I tend to be very risk averse. And so I will say that my kids don't go anywhere. My kids haven't seen anybody outside of their household in three and a half months, four months. For me, it's not even so much that I'm worried that my kids are going to end up in the hospital. I just can't take time off work. <laughs> especially so, now. I get that. We need you on now. the front lines. And with, with, you know, three grandparents living with us, I can't bring it home. I can't have my, you know. I can't have them getting sick either. So we just don't, don't do anything. Don't go anywhere. Do you see that changing anytime soon? No, not at all. I don't. Um, we're having very long and serious discussions about daycare and whether our daycare is going to open soon. Um, and we've, my husband and I have been having very long and serious discussions about whether we're going to do that. No, I don't, I don't see them, you know, even if we do make the decision to allow them to go to daycare, um, that's going to be all they're, they're going to do. It is so encouraging to hear you speak, frankly, about your own kids, because I think these are the conversations that every parent's having. Oh, absolutely. And they're not easy decisions to make. And what's right for one family is not going to be right for another family. But the key is no matter what you decide to do and what works for your family personally, when you're out and about, you need to wear the mask to help stop the spread because that reduces the risk for everybody. Dr. Amy Edwards, a pediatric infectious disease specialist in Cleveland. Masks and continued social distancing are public health components of successful reopening. Dr. Richard Besser at the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation joins us. There are also policy considerations, right? And I worry about that. You know, as economies open up and people have the opportunity to go back to work, and as the supplemental unemployment insurance dries up, what you're going to see is those people who are economically less secure um, will be going back to work. And if we don't ensure that everyone who goes back to work uh, has the protective equipment to minimize the risk to them, we're going to see lower income people uh, hit the hardest. I saw the CDC just found Hispanics are now disproportionately becoming infected at a higher rate than, than other minority groups. Is, is there anything in particular that should be done to address that? Yeah, you know, the the key to public health is really understanding what's going on in local conditions. So, you know, if it's a setting where uh, uh, Latino uh, individuals represent um, a large part of the agricultural sector, you say then, okay, what's being done? What's being done to ensure that agricultural workers have the protections that they that they need? Um, But without understanding without looking carefully, without having as an objective uh, that everyone in your community should have the same opportunity for health and well-being uh, and that different members of your community will have different needs. Um, you can know everything about how to control this, this, uh, this pandemic, but we'll fail because some people just won't be able to follow that guidance. And we haven't done all that we need to do to make sure that they can. Is there any good news here out of the last five months? Yeah, I'm, I'm seeing a lot of good news. You know, I'm seeing, you know, I'm here in New Jersey and I'm, I'm on the, the state commission here to provide advice on restarting and recovering. And I've seen uh, a dramatic decline in hospitalization, in cases, uh, in the percentage of people who are tested who are positive. 
I'm seeing, you know, room in hospitals now to take care of people uh, beyond those who have, have COVID. And I'm seeing public health principles and principles of equity being used as the drivers around decisions for, for reopening the economy. I'm seeing that in New York as well. And, and it gives me hope that following these principles works. And, and so, you know, th- this region that I'm in has been hit the hardest in the United States. And by following good public health principles, it, it, it's right now getting under, under control. You know, too many people have lost their lives, 12,000 people here, here in New Jersey. Um, but I feel much more comfortable going forward that the state won't let it get out of control again. Are, are you confident that these states that have gone through this and, as Governor Cuomo is found, fond of saying, made it to the other side of the mountain, aren't going to have to climb back up that mountain again? I, I like to push back against that, that entire metaphor of climb the mountain and they've come back down because the way this works is it's a series of, of, of mountains and valleys. And the, the fact that you've come up one mountain and you've made it over and you're, you've come back down, it doesn't mean you're not going to go up again. Um, but if the public health system is ready and identifies cases quickly, you can get these, uh, these, these new little clusters and, and, and sparks under control so that they don't go grow into big fires that overwhelm your systems again. And those are the systems that are being put in place. And, and I'm optimistic that, that with the right attention to this, uh, we can deal with this much better going forward. Dr. Richard Besser at the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. I'm Aaron Katursky. Now over to Amy Robach. Thank you, Aaron. Joining me now is ABC News chief medical correspondent, Dr. Jen Ashton. And Dr. Jen, news over the weekend hone in on the issue of COVID-19 in the worldwide uh, sports world. So many testing positive from the players to the staff. And we're talking about youth leagues, colleges, even the pros. Right. So here's what we know the latest on this, because this is evolving. Remember, a lot of these sports have been on hiatus and they're just starting to come back now. We've seen an increase in cases at Clemson University, most coming from football teams. Um, We have to remember when you talk about pro sports, an estimated 40 percent of their annual revenue actually comes from ticket sales. So it's one of the ripple effects of this pandemic. But medically, it's really hard to socially distance and wear masks while you're either training, practicing or in athletic competition. Now, we do know that the NBA proposed this concept of a bubble for its teams. Uh, so many other professional leagues looking to that to see if it would work for them. And just recently, Major, Major League Baseball shut down two training centers in Arizona and Florida due to an increase in these COVID-19 cases. Yeah, a lot of these sports are called contact sports for a reason. Right. And that in, brings up so many of the problems. What decisions need to be made before they can actually do this safely? Well, I think that's really the question here. Usually we talk about theories. These are really complicated decisions that are being being looked at right now. And I think the first thing when you talk about this is that these are decisions that have to be made age appropriate based on different level of sports. Youth leagues, obviously very different than collegiate and professional leagues. And in my medical opinion, it's not so much if these players test positive, but when and how that's managed. Because again, we don't expect this virus to go away. So therefore, it is really important to have a good testing strategy in place and a good self-quarantine strategy, because it should not be a surprise when with aggressive testing in these sports leagues or schools, you pick up positive cases. That's right. And with fall sports now having to decide about spring training or summer training, at least, what are the unknowns that have to be 
figure it out with well, respect to this virus. I think that's really the difficult thing. And, you know, my daughter plays a Division One college sport, so we're going through this ourselves in real time. But right now, what they don't know, no one really understands what the long-term or short-term effects of canceling another season or seasons of sports. We don't know what the natural trend of COVID-19 is over the next six months or so, um, because, again, we've never been in this situation before. We think that athletes may represent a lower risk for severe disease, but again, that needs to be followed. And very important, medically, we need to have good return-to-play guidelines for athletes who have been diagnosed with confirmed cases of COVID-19, in particular, looking at heart evaluations before they are cleared to return to practice and play, because that is a potential risk of COVID disease in general. So a lot that still has to be figured out. All right, Dr. Jen, thank you so much. COVID-19 cases continue to rise in many states, including Oregon, which broke daily records last week as it near 7,000 total cases. Here to give us the latest on how his city is doing is Portland, Oregon Mayor Ted Wheeler. Mayor Wheeler, thanks for being with us. And on Friday, Portland began that phase one reopening with businesses like bars and restaurants and hair salons once again opening customers. How concerned are you about having this reopening amid a continued rise in coronavirus cases there? Well, we're concerned anytime we see an uptick in COVID-19 cases. Uh, just a little context, the city of Portland is in Multnomah County, which is the last of all of the 36 counties in Oregon to move to phase one reopening, which we did just a couple of days ago. So the important thing that we're hearing from public health officials is that everyone continue to follow the guidance, both from the county and our state officials, continue the physical distancing measures, Make sure that you wear face coverings and, of course, stay at home as much as possible. And then on Wednesday, the governor has also directed that for the most densely populated counties, including Multnomah County, people must wear face masks while they're in stores or in outdoor public spaces. Mayor, protesters, as you know, have taken to the streets of Portland every night since the death of George Floyd. Last week, statues of George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, pulled down by protesters in your city. What's your reaction to these protests? Well, look, this is this is healthy demonstration. What we're seeing here is nothing short of uh, a major um, uh, what we're doing now as a nation is we're actually coming to grips with the reality that we have systematic racism here in Portland as across the country. There's been inequities that have existed. People, particularly black people, have not had justice. And so people are awakening and there's a reckoning to that. And um, I think on the whole, it's very healthy. We've had tens of thousands of people out peacefully demonstrating in our community. We've had a handful of situations, graffiti, some limited cases of violence. But on the whole, it's very been very positive and uh, very peaceful. On the whole. But then if you take a look at Seattle, one person was killed, another injured by gunfire in that autonomous zone established by protesters there. Last week, Portland police dispersed the crowd when an attempt to create a serious autonomous zone was made very close to where you live. Uh, what's your level of concern about the days and weeks ahead as you say things are typically healthy, but you do have these moments where there is concern? Well, certainly. There's no question about it. There's a small group of people. They tend to come out late at night. And uh, from my perspective, they are a distraction to the importance of the larger movement. And the larger movement is about justice for black people in America. It's about dismantling systematic racism in our institutions. And when this handful of people comes out and they uh, commit acts of violence or vandalism, They're doing so in a manner that I think distracts from that larger movement. 
With regard to the Occupy effort, there was an effort here to create an autonomous zone in Portland. I made it very clear that I think that's a distraction from the importance of the movement. And I also made it clear we will not allow an autonomous zone here in the city of Portland. And from my perspective, that's the final word. It's not going to happen. All right. You heard it. Portland Mayor Ted Wheeler, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. With the end of the school year and summer camp plans all in limbo due to this pandemic, working parents are scrambling to find childcare. So what options are available and how do you make sure your family is safe? Here to discuss all of this is CEO of Care.com, Tim Allen. Tim, thanks so much for being with us. And as we all know, businesses are starting to reopen, moms and dads going back to work. Are you seeing a big increase of families on Care.com looking for caregivers right now? We are. We're seeing a triple-digit increase of families looking specifically for in-home care. So we recently had a survey, our cost of care annual survey. 63% of parents are very reluctant to take their kids back to daycares or group care, which is actually exacerbating an already existing child care issue for affordability and accessibility. Yeah, even before the pandemic, I know that finding child care is and wasn't easy. And now, of course, it's even more difficult. So what are some questions parents should be asking a potential caregiver during these times? Yeah, so we highly encourage conversation. When you're bringing a child care worker into your home, the things that we encourage are you start to ask questions such as, who have they been in contact in? We call it a personal contact tracing, so to speak. We also think you should establish the rules on masks, hand washing. This is your home environment. So parents can actually control the environment and control the exposure circle that their children or their elderly members of their family are exposed to. Having direct conversations, being very upfront. We also highly encourage putting it in writing, right? You should sit down, write down the things that you all agreed to between the caregiver and the family, and really make sure that you're asking the questions about where they've been, what they've been exposed to, are they wearing masks, are they following all the practices. We also highly encourage parents to become very versed in the CDC protocols, because if you're going to bring someone into your home, you want to know what to look for. Now, I'm curious, is it reasonable to ask a caregiver to wear a mask and to keep on some of those practices that you want them to be doing while they're with your children when they're at home, when they're with their family, with, with, when they're with their relatives? What's reasonable to ask them to do in terms of safety guidelines? Yeah, it's absolutely reasonable. If you're going to be bringing in a caregiver on a regular basis into your home, it's perfectly acceptable for you to ask for them to follow the safest practices that they can while they're at home or while they're not in your home. We've actually had a lot of families come up with out-of-the-box solutions, such as things as providing transportation for the caregiver because they don't want the caregiver to be exposed to anything outside of a, a circle where they feel comfortable. So you can absolutely discuss those rules. And it goes both ways. Caregivers should also be asking families what safety practices they're following. You know, as caregivers enter into the home, they want to make sure that they're not being exposed. They want to make sure that the children haven't been playing in circles where perhaps the top safety practices weren't being administered. So both conversations on both sides, everything is on the table. You should have those conversations directly. Well, we certainly appreciate all of that information. Tim Allen, thank you for your time. Thank you. Up next, when we come back, Dr. Jen Ashton in the house with answers to your coronavirus questions. And the Arizona brewery stopped cold once again by the coronavirus. We're back in a moment. We're joined again by Dr. Jen Ashton with answers to so many of your questions about the coronavirus. So, Dr. Jen, thanks for being here. I'll start with the first question. Is it worthwhile to wear a face shield 
as wear as a mask if you're traveling on a plane or on public transportation? Short answer is there's no official guidelines on this. However, we did talk about a recent review article that was published in The Lancet that talked about a possible associated reduction in risk of becoming sick with COVID-19 for people who wore some kind of eye protection, whether that's glasses, goggles, or a face shield. So people have to make this decision on their own about their comfort level, their discomfort level, their comfort with risk. Um, and obviously, what's the end point? We can't completely wrap ourselves in a plastic bubble every time we go out. So I do expect there to be evolving um, published data on this, though, but not yet. All right. I'm interested on your answer to the next one. Do we know how many different strains of the virus there are? This is really interesting in the world of virology, and it's oftentimes kind of miscommunicated in media headlines. So here's the deep dive on this. First of all, all viruses undergo mutation. That is what they do. And RNA viruses, like this strain of coronavirus, are prone to mutation. So it is not a surprise when we check the genetic fingerprint of a given virus that we see subtle changes. The key, which few people actually discuss when they hear this headline or make this headline, is does the mutation actually change the function of the virus. Right now, there's no evidence of that, but people are following it. They're also following it to see as a tracking mechanism what strain is coming from where. And so this is what the disease detectives do. But it is very important for people to understand that mutations, fine, unless they change the function. And again, they could change that function to make the virus stronger or weaker or the same. So there's a lot here that needs to be unpacked. And right now, they're just in the collecting data stage. Right. Okay, that makes sense. Next question. Are the average increase in cases in the U.S. comparable to the other countries? Well, first of all, it's really hard to compare apples to apples here because we have to remember that as we're looking at other countries in other parts of the world, like Brazil, Russia, India, who are seeing huge skyrockets in their cases, um, when we look at those cases, remember, are, is that a country that has comparable lab tracking ability to the United States. A lot of these countries don't. They don't have the capacity to report lab data and confirmed cases in real time. They don't have the capacity to test people um, similarly or in an analogous fashion to the U.S. So right now, you can't make that head-to-head comparison. You can just look at other parts in the world and see that we are not the only country struggling for sure. Okay. Uh, Next question. Have we learned any new info about the pediatric multi-symptom inflammatory disease? Nothing new that's been published yet in peer review data or even just put out before it's been peer reviewed. But we do know that overall the risk to the pediatric population of this inflammatory syndrome is low. The awareness of pediatricians and the CDC to track cases is definitely up. So everyone's on the lookout for this. And again, it's still not clear whether this is directly and causally related to COVID-19 or or and or whether this can just be seen as a nonspecific reaction to infection that can be seen in the pediatric age group as well. So still in the collecting data stage. All right, Dr. Jen, thank you so much. And you can submit questions to Dr. Jen on her Instagram at Dr. J. Ashton. Well, as establishments begin opening back up, one Arizona brewery had to close its doors again and re-strategize when COVID-19 rates started rising and an employee there tested positive. Here to talk about his new normal, is the shop beer company owner, Dylan De Miguel. Welcome, Dylan. So tell us a little bit about what happened as the I, shop beer opened, uh, started to open its doors back up. Walk us through it. Yeah, so, you know, here in, uh, in Arizona, uh, we were given the green light to open back up with some guidelines here on May 30th, or excuse me, May 15th. 
Um, you know, we decided to slow roll it, um, keep a grab and go option, very uh, minimal contact for our employees. Um, but on May 30th, we decided to uh, open up our patio, uh, not let anybody inside, but uh, open up our patio and see how that goes. Um, and then on, on May 31st here, uh, Governor Ducey put into uh, a curfew uh, from at 8 p.m. So we had to we kind of thought in the best interest of our staff and community that we'd go back to our grab and go model for that, for that next week. Um, and then during that time, unfortunately, one of our staff members tested positive for COVID-19. So then how did you pivot your business so you could stay afloat during this time? You know, you know, for us, it was really interesting. So about 98% of our revenue as a business was made on draft sales. So uh, people actually going to a bar and a restaurant, ordering a draft beer, uh, whether that was at our own tasting room here, our own bar, or it was somewhere else. So uh, what we did is, as we worked very closely with our uh, distributor here in Arizona and transitioned all of our uh, all of our liquid into cans uh, and tried to put it on the stores and uh, put it on the shelf at grocery stores. And I'm just curious what you feel like your community, has it been supportive of your small business? What, what do you want to say about their support of you during this time? You know, um, our community has been nothing short of spectacular for us. Um, from from regulars here um, all the way to our like our distributor at Hensley Beverage to some other uh, bottle shops here locally, um, our, our community has just been... Uh, been stellar. I mean, they have really, really come in through in the clutch for us and, and really kept our business alive through this time. Yeah. And I'm sure so many of them very eager to come back in for a beer. Do you know when yeah. that will be, when that will happen? You know, right now with cases rising as they are here um, in, in Arizona, it's hard to know, to be honest. And um, I don't know if there's going to be a perfect time to open or it'll be abundantly clear. But the hope is that if things start to, if cases start to fall off, uh, at that time, we'll start to reconsider opening up. But at the moment, we're just open for grab and go and uh, just trying to keep our, our staff and community uh, safe and hopefully slow the spread. Yeah. And Dylan, speaking of your staff, how is your employee doing who contracted COVID-19? You know, they're doing good. Uh, they're doing good. Definitely on a, a good path to recovery. They never need to go to the hospital um, they were able to recover at home. So that was very encouraging to see, uh, see that employee, um, you know, have to have to face that challenge. But, uh, you know, they've come through on the other side, which is which is a blessing. So we're very happy about that. And we're glad to hear that as well. And we're wishing you the very best and certainly hope that you continue to have good health. Thank you so much for joining us, Dylan. And by the way, before you go, I know that you and your wife welcomed your first baby last month. So congratulations as well. Thank you. During this pandemic, doctors have emerged as some of our nation's biggest heroes, and one California pediatrician is going far beyond the call of duty. Dr. Daniel Bruckner has helped donate more than 60,000 face masks and PPE to doctors' offices and nursing homes that are facing a short supply. And here to discuss his endeavor is Dr. Daniel Bruckner himself. So first of all, tell me what inspired you to do this. So when the uh, pandemic first hit and news of coronavirus was uh, 
coming uh, from around the world. It was very apparent that uh, healthcare workers were being unfortunately horribly affected by this. And so it was very apparent that we were going to need uh, PPE to not just protect ourselves, but also uh, to protect our staff and to protect the patients. And so um, it was, I, I called around to a bunch of the other pediatricians and none of us could really find any PPE. My, my staff called our local suppliers, Amazon, and, and there was nothing available till like July. So I just decided to take matters into my own hands and, uh, and start donating. I'm curious how you were able to source PPE equipment to purchase that bulk order in the first place, because, yes, I remember we were all looking for where you could find it and it was nowhere to be found. So uh, it's actually kind of a fun story. I have a, a buddy from college who I knew did um, sourcing from around the world, importing. And um, so I called him up on a whim and I said, do you have any ability to get PPE, like surgical masks? And he said he actually did. So he looked into it. And um, unfortunately, the, the, the minimum order at that point was about 10,000 units. And there was a lot of price gouging going on. So I asked him, like, at what point could we maybe, if I could buy more, could the price come down? And he said, yeah, if you buy 30000 then I can get the price down a little bit for you. So I just figured, you know, this need was not going to go anywhere. And uh, all the, the, the healthcare workers around were going to need it. So I just, my very first person was 30000 surgical masks. And I just figured I'd start donating. Wow. So talk a little bit about those donations. Where are they going and how are you meeting the demand? Right. So very, right away, I just started donating to all the other local pediatricians in the area. Um, uh, my sister's a pediatrician. Actually, both my sisters are pediatricians <laughs> and, my, and my parents. And so I um, donated a bunch of the different pediatricians around. And I mean, the need was so apparent. One of the pediatricians that, that I donated to there, and they were down to their last five surgical masks. It was actually to the point where they weren't even wearing themselves. They were just giving them to sick kids who needed them. And when I texted them saying that I had masks and I was going to donate the next day, they started, they put their mask back on for the first time in like a week or so. And um, so the, the need was very apparent for pediatricians and so much so that the, the word got out and... Um, and nursing homes started to hear that I, what I was doing. And so they started calling me. So I started donating to them, pediatric subspecialists, um, preschools. I mean, it's, it's really the, the, the need has kind of become endless. So people started asking how they could help. And so what I decided, like how they, if they could donate, if they could contribute. So that's when I started my GoFundMe site. I'm sure it's a pretty remarkable emotional response when you give those PPE to people who have been without, who desperately need them for their own safety. What have you heard back from those people? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the response has just been amazing. I mean, they, every doctor wants to protect themselves, their family. I mean, I, I have a 16-month-old son at home, Asher, and a wife, and, and I want to, you know, I, the last thing I want to do is bring uh, COVID home to them. Um, and everyone, you know, we all have staff that we want to protect and the patients. So, so literally, when I show up to these offices and, and nursing homes with these, with these supplies, I feel like I'm the Red Cross showing up to a small village with food. I mean, it's 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 uh, it really hits 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 home, and it 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 feels really good. Oh, well, we're so grateful for everything you're doing, and for of course being with us today. We appreciate everything. Thank you so much. All right, we're going to turn to 
Another one of our favorite doctors, Dr. Jen Ashton, for her final thoughts. What a great story that was, Amy. So today, my, my final thoughts and really my prescription is to try to help people with these constant decisions that everyone is now facing, these questions of, should I go here? Should I do this? Should I not do that? I'm hearing from my patients, from my friends and family. Everyone has these questions, completely understandable. So really, what I want to explain is how to think like a doctor, which is really ask yourself Four questions, not two, four. What are the risks of doing it? Let's say going on a trip. What are the risks of going? What are the risks of not going? What are the benefits of going? And what are the benefits of not going? Those are the four questions. And then you can also throw into the mix, do you have options? Do you have alternatives? Are there other things that you need to consider? And I think it is so helpful in stratifying risk and it can help people make these decisions. In medicine, sometimes we can actually put numbers into those answers. Right now, we don't really have hard data that enables us to say, if you go on this trip, your risk of getting COVID is X percent. Right. So we can't put hard numbers there, but it's so helpful if you train yourself or get in the habit of thinking like a doctor, asking those four questions, I think it, it really can help you make these decisions that we're all dealing with yeah, now. exactly. And then use that same formula for other parts for of life. your life, too. I love <laughs> That's it. Right. Right. Exactly. Dr. Jen, thank you, you so bet. much. I got the eye of the now, the spotlight on the young girls from Nashville who are shaking things up, meeting on Twitter, and then forming the group Teens for Equality to Fight Racism the major force behind a massive recent protest and the first in our Young Changemaker series. Hi, my name is Katie Green. My name is Amaro Smith. My name is Michaela Smith. My name is Jade Fuller. My name is Naya Collins. When George Floyd died, I was like, again? So are we going to have to protest for the same thing we protested for a couple months back again? Just to think about how many people that got killed by police officers that people don't know about. It's just saying It's just not surprising anymore because it's become such a norm in America. I realize that this is something that doesn't really surprise me anymore. We are desensitized to the literal death of a human because of their skin tone. I just didn't know what to say. I was just like, wow, again. It can't help like who you are and how you're born, you know? The way you look or who you are doesn't make you different, doesn't make your mindset any different. What inspired me to start attending protests was I attended with Jade because, you know, Jade's one of my best friends and she is a person of color. I decided to protest so that I could see all the people around me who do want change like me. And I really wanted to like see change locally. Me and Jade were both like, this can't be the end. Jade decided to also help organize a protest and that's when I joined. So that's when we found these posts online about the one on June 4th. We didn't have an organization because we're 14, 15, 16. Jade came up with the name Teens for Equality. We made an Instagram and we promoted our protest for that. And then we just asked people like for donations such as water and food. Then we also brought tents and tables, got medics and like a bail number and uh, legal help in case like anything happened. We got first aid and we also got masks because, you know, Corona. So we just planned to have all these things. Saturday's protest didn't have as many people as the protest which was held by us. We expected 800 to 1,000. To even see 800 plus people there, it was mind boggling because I was just like, we did this? More than 50 and 60 and 70 people came. To a year that 65K came, is, it's amazing. Since we are the future, we want to change the system right now and make it equal for everybody before we become adults.
And the fact that we're so close now, I think it's just because we're all so passionate about what's happening. How we met is just over Twitter. We were not friends before this protest. When I got added to the group chat, I didn't know I was going to be healthy. <laughs> planning i just thought it was already made and ready to go it shows that no matter who you are how old you are what you are that you can make a difference if you're all fighting for the same cause a community can come together in unity to make change we can all learn from those girls teens for equality powerful and inspirational and that's our program for today i'm amy robach thanks for listening Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.